Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the podcast associated with the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization project at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Lawrence Rubin, an associate professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Lawrence is someone whose work I've admired for for a long time, much like our other guests. And I'm really keen to, to talk to him about a range of things, from his intellectual work, such as his, his wonderful book, Islam in the Balance, to his more recent involvement in, in a number of different governmental uh, departments over the past year or so. So, so Lawrence, Larry, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, for giving us your time. Well, thank you very much, Simon, for having me. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure. It's uh, a great opportunity to talk to you about, about your work, which I think is absolutely fascinating. But like with, with other episodes, I wonder, Larry, could you tell us a bit about how you got into, into this part of, of academia? What, what, what prompted your interest in the Middle East? Uh, I, you know, I, I get asked this question so much, and uh, and I feel like I, I never really give the same answer because I think it, <laughs> it just came from so many different um, directions. I think overall the consistent theme every time I answer this is really it's the complexity of it that um, not saying other regions aren't complex, but sure. uh, that fascinated me the most. Um, it's the I think interwoven identities um, and changing identities uh, that that really just um, you know just made me made me really want to try to understand um, or, or get a better sense of of these uh, um, this mosaic we'll say that you know that you find in almost every single country uh, in some capacity and um, I think that's what really really drove me to it uh, to the Middle East in the in the broader sense. Was there a particular thing that, that prompted this interest? I mean, I, I certainly echo your, your comments about complexity and, and how fascinating that is, but, but what stimulated that interest in complexity? Was there a particular incident? Um, I think a series. I mean, through, I'd always been kind of, I've been interested in, and I, I, you know, I think I remember taking a class in, in, uh, in college from actually, my first class ever was from Ira Lapidus, the great, great uh, oh, historian. And um, who you know wrote the most uh, probably one of the best books if, uh, on the history of Islamic societies I think was the title, and um, I didn't necessarily pursue that in, as an undergraduate. I actually I actually was interested in post-war European integration and, and particularly German German history. Oh, and, fascinating. Um, and yet uh, you know I, I think it wasn't even until I, I did a master's at the London School of Economics in my la- my next class, and it was um, actually with a professor at LSE who had, I think started a couple of years ago uh, Kirsten Schultz and right. um, so it kind of went from there and and then um, uh, I spent um, I spent two years I spent two years in Israel and um, and started getting into Israeli Palestinian um, uh, subjects and then uh, kind of looked elsewhere seeing that I, f- I felt like that area was very saturated and sure, um, obviously yeah. wrought of politics and full of it and went to in a different direction and focused much more on the Arab world um, and, uh, and and went back first to Morocco as a matter of fact because when I was in LSE I, my first my first trip really was um, was all the way down from uh, from Copenhagen to um, to Morocco and I was absolutely uh, 
um, enchanted by the by the country for so many for so many reasons. I found it so fascinating, and um, so I knew I wanted to go back in some capacity. I didn't focus on North Africa, but, um, yeah. but in, uh, in other areas throughout graduate school. Okay, fascinating. And then you went on and you did your PhD at the UCLA. What was that in? That was in political science, and um, I had so I had a. Co-chairs to kind of combine my interests, which um, of comparative politics uh, with Leonard Binder um, was a co-chair with uh, Deborah Larson in, in international relations. Right, and in part because I think the nature of the um, of studying the Middle East is is such where you really can't separate international relations from comparative politics. Of course, um, yeah. Uh, is is that that's where I really felt that you you had to talk to both audiences in IR though it's really hard because people want to put you or in general they want to put you in one side or another either you're comparative or IR but Middle East as we know you know you have to bring in the the domestic element to to almost everything um, and uh, anyway so it was a great it was a great place to to be able to do that and also uh, for Middle East purposes studying under the Sheikh uh, was just an incredible. Uh, incredible experience. Sure. So, what was your your thesis then? It was. It really was a. Um, <clears throat> it was kind of the predecessor to the book uh, Islam and the Balance. Right. And um, it it was. If I, I probably have trouble remembering the exact title, but <laughs> I kind of took a turn on looking at soft power um, of how how states kind of um, use their own soft power. It might have been the ideology, soft power, something I, I really can't remember the exact title. We'll let um, you off, Larry. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, and uh, and how basically I was, I was, from one perspective, I was really interested in how, you know, everyone talks about how soft power is just this nice thing. Um, and then what I was you know, kind of interested in was like, wait a second, it's not a nice thing for those states it's trying to influence. It's a threat. It's a complete threat. You know, we see it as, oh, in the Cold War, we use this to try to influence, but the Soviets and their spheres of influence did not see that as a very nice thing. So, you know, it took a few people actually in the, in the more in the IR field to say, to step back and say, wait, the soft power, you think it's like always a good thing, but it may be if you're on that side of it, it's not always that. And, um, and it combined, you know, how I got to that subject was actually, so I'd always been interested in poli- the big policy questions and torn between the intellectual fascination I have with being in a country, just talking to people and, uh, you know, not just cab drivers, <laughs> and talking <laughs> to people and learning what politics are like on the ground, what their days or da- daily lives are like, and how do you connect with those, that with those big, big uh, questions of uh, the higher level. And so actually I went... I started off in terms of doing language study. I started off both in Morocco and then I did some in Yemen um, and trying to figure out uh, what I was, you know, what what I was really trying to get at. And one of the it brought me to the region initially was I got really interested in this idea of threat perception at the same time. And the big questions in the mid 2000s, a lot of them were having to do with what are we doing as we still are today? Uh, What's happening with Iran um, and its nuclear program? Yeah. Oddly enough, and um, so I went from that kind of realist perspective, and and uh, talking to people, particularly in more so in the elite level in, in Egypt, um, of what this what this means to the region. How do you perceive threats? And I kept coming into what 
a, a normal, you know, a realist wouldn't necessarily uh, talk so much about. But these identity questions, and you know, I'm trying to weed out. Oh, how is this person just trying to talk to you because they're going to appeal to this? But how are these these stories always about? about Shia, you know, like, oh, are there really that many Shia in, in Egypt? I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> and, then, um, and, uh, and so then that's what kind of got me onto this a little bit more. And, and I, I didn't look at that nuclear question, but I kept saying how, in a certain sense, you, you talk about, people talk about these big threats when they're really not military threats. That kind of, that kind of framed the issue for me. And that's how I kind of proceeded. Sure. And, and that's really what you explore in the book then, Islam and the Balance, which is a, a really fascinating read. It's it's something that, that I really enjoyed reading in terms of bringing together a number of of disparate sort of disciplines, but also uh, different approaches to the region. In terms of you got the the sort of the more security focused aspects, the, the threat perceptions, but then bringing in that, that softer sort of identity side of things. And it's really interesting. So for, for people who've not read it, can you just give us a, a brief overview of, of the main themes, Larry, please? Yeah, sure. Thanks. And I appreciate the, uh, of course, the flattery. And, you know, I'm blushing on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? Um, it really kind of looks at this, uh, you know, on the one hand, looks at this idea of the bigger question is, can ideas threaten? And in particular, yeah. um, it, it it shows how and, and why Arab states have feared Islamist regimes that have come to power um, and examines the roles these ideas can play as a national security threat. Uh, what it does is, you know, and looks at it basically compares the rise of Islamist regimes in Iran, the the responses to the rise of Islamist regime in Iran and Sudan, where they were regarded by Muslim majority states in the region as national security threats, even though at the time these Islamic states uh, that came to power didn't have significant military capabilities. So there, I'm trying to kind of, kind of look at this. Okay, when the military capability is down and the ideological one is up, why do they become these threats? And so, um, in in these in these kind of cases, basically the question is, um, I'm looking at, in a lot of ways, these resulting hostilities leading to, to types of hard balancing, allying uh, with, say, with Iran against Iraq during the Iraq war, um, opposing certain proxies. Um, in the that's in the the Iranian case, and in the the Sudanese case, it's much more looking at say the Egyptian Sudanese relationship um, that that is transformed after 1989 when Hassan al Tarabi comes to power, um, and a couple of other things I explore in the sense or the part of the the argument here is that um, is that ideology triggers triggers threat perception affects state policy because it can undermine the domestic political stability and uh, regime survival in another state. So I look a lot of that. So I look at that regime uh, survival and I try to work out this type of mechanism. Um, one of the things I also want to emphasize there is it's about the projection of this domestic ideology through cultural, culturally resonant uh, symbols. Um, and then the second big argument that comes from this is that states engage in uh, ideological or ideational balancing in, in part in response to this uh, ideological threat. And it takes place both at the international level, but the domestic level as well. And what I, you know, I um, try to do is to kind of identify um, various ways that these states do this at the domestic level through things like counterframing, um, different different tactics of counterframing, um, both at the domestic level in terms of its opponents, but also in, in also in foreign policy, um, and. Uh, 
you know, one of the other points is that is is to kind of to make is that um, how and how and when a state utilizes an ideology um, is is important because it must be uh, kind of say it's must be projected. It can't just be sitting around all the time. Sure. Um, and it takes taking place in a period a lot of times. The condition is uh, states and societal crises. And it's it's fascinating to hear you speak about that. There's such complexity at play in the argument with a range of different levels of analysis, a range of different um, ontological versions and interpretations of security. Just briefly, Larry, what? Uh, who were the main influences then on on this book? I mean, I could see a range of different scholars having an input, but I wonder who who were the main influences for you? Well, um, you know, the, uh, I think a lot. Well, clearly, in reading. Uh, you know, Stephen Walt and uh, and Michael Barnett's work on and Greg Gauze, uh, I mean, uh, among others. Sure. But, um, um, you know, but those two, in terms of the two poles that I was fascinated by, of uh, Stephen Walt and then Michael Barnett, and then trying to figure out if this is it's that or something like that, or trying to find that right space. And and there's uh, plenty of people of work, you know, that I that I admire. One is Greg Gauze's, but. Um, uh, and, and others kind of to go into it. But I think those were kind of those, those were bigger, the intel, the intellectual ones. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and I try to kind of find, find my right way of doing it. Of course, they, you know, when you do, when, as we know, especially in your first few works or that way, um, we can't just, it's not so always so easy to find a, I mean, we're supposed to try to find, oh, here's this middle ground, but sometimes, you know, you stake a better claim in the field, which um, is to kind of take a more extreme position. Uh, some people can, I think you can do that actually probably as a, as a more senior scholar at a certain yeah. place. Yeah, I think so. But the other thing that I really liked about it is that you, you draw on, for me anyway, reading it, you draw on your, your sort of background in, in terrorism and political violence. I think there's there's a number of, of things that you do from those types of literatures with regard to framing and things like that that makes it really quite an interesting and innovative way of of looking at the role of ideology and and the way in which Islam is used and can be used and interpreted. And it's that, that latter point, I think, that's most interesting with regard to to Sudan, Iran, Egypt and, and Saudi Arabia, who are the main main thrusts of the book. Yeah, no, it's well. It's interesting you mentioned that because I had, um, and uh, and I and probably like it was. It's pretty neat because I never really even thought about it coming from from that area. Um, but you're 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 probably right. You know, a lot of times you don't realize these things. That framing thing, you know, was interesting. That it came in in part because um, I think at the time I was just reading around for how things were. Um, you know, just various literatures, and I got really interested. Uh, and by the way, and you know, the um, just uh, it was kind of captivated by the social movement theory, but how it how is a great descriptive um, a way to understand these protests. But the framing parts I found to be really really compelling. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, at the time, and you right, rightly mentioned this. Now thinking about it, you know, the the mid to late two thousands, people were really into um, these um, those sort of the war of ideas in a different sense um, of, of rehabilitation and those types of things for, for terrorism and thought this is the way to do, go about it. So maybe there's something there, even though that's not really what I talk about 
in the book, but that yeah. the terror part of it. And I tried to, you know, professionally, I always tried to stay away because I never didn't want in the 2000s particular to say, oh, this person studies the Middle East, therefore they must be a terrorism expert or they're a terrorism expert. Therefore, they they must know something about the Middle East. That one drove me crazy even more. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because I certainly saw those. But what what, what what another thing that did draw me at the time as part of the time in Egypt, there were, you know, I was fascinated by um uh, the role of ideology and the and ideological shifts that played, and this is going a little bit off topic with the um, the Islamic group, the Al Ghamat Islamiyah, and um, and that was something I wrote I wrote about with a co-author, um, my co-author Lisa Blades, and um, at the time, and it was it just happened to be that um, there was a discussion about it in, in Cairo in the mid 2000s. So um, you know maybe it's it's in there somewhere, and certainly plays a role in the the Egypt, Egypt Sudan case, and that's partly you know what was driving me, and I think that's what brought me to the topic as I was looking a lot at Egypt, Egypt, Sudan, and of course you can't get away from the terrorism aspect, which is what I talk about. And then what's, what role does that part play in terms of the actual real terrorism or ideology? And what does it say about the state that's trying to do it? So yeah. you basically help me connect or, um, you know, square this, uh, this, this <laughs> circle. <laughs> it's interesting you, you say about the, the, the bugbears that you had. We had a conversation with Vincent Durak uh, a while ago, and, and he, was, he was articulating similar concerns about the inherent Orientalist view about the Middle East and how there were all these things just inherently associated with it. And if you were doing this, then you were doing something particularly Saidian, if you will, that, I mean, all, all the points that Said talked about with othering, with the exotic nature, with the inherent view of violence. And yeah, it's interesting to hear you echoing some of Vincent's points there. Yeah. But uh, sort of moving beyond that, I wonder, Larry, if I can ask you just to speculate a little bit. Using the approach that you have, and I'm putting you on the spot a little, so I hope you'll forgive me. <laughs> but okay. I wonder, what what do you think your book says, if we were to apply it to, to maybe sect-based difference? What do you think it, it would have to say about that in light of... So the fragmentation, uncertainty that we're seeing across the region, the states across a number of different examples faces similar types of issues to those that you identify. And I wonder, thinking about it, there's there's a lot that your approach could say about sect-based difference, I think. Yeah, I I agree. And that's why I found, you know, I see your research and in, in the the former and, and current and future projects so interesting because it almost takes what what I think um, you know could be done especially when we're talking about the types of we'll say rather than at the state level I think more at the if you're talking about kind of the the more local level I mean a lot of the same mechanisms should and can work and as I noticed in the you know as you point out in the in the book as well um, sectarian at this the way that those sectarian narratives, they get pushed as part of the state narratives, um, you know, by calling somebody, and this now seems like old business, but, um, you know, by by labeling a, uh, a state as a Shia state, it's, it, ex- it excludes, it, it includes certain people to, on your sides, um, things like this. And also you associate certain negative symbols like this, um, if you're obviously coming from that Sunni pers- Orthodox Sunni perspective. Um, but and, and that's why I think in part those types of of tactics if it's at the framing and uh level are are many are are of the same what's interesting what i think would be interesting in that 
direction is also of where those, um, you know, as opposed to I look at the state, at kind of the state and elite level and using mm-hmm. those institutions, um, if you go beyond the state or under the states, um, sub-state actors of what types of, um, you know, what types of, we'll say, capabilities or a- assets in the information sphere do they have to do this? Is it the local um, you know, religious councils, if they're doing it along religious grounds, is it the local, I don't know, television stations? I'm not sure if this is kind of where, what you were thinking, but this is also just me thinking aloud of how it can be played out. Um, the other thing is it, I mean, it's a, it is almost in a sense ripe because if we look at the region right now, um, and in these porous borders, borders and the, uh, civil wars, and even if they kind of stabilize a little bit more, we're, we're still not going to have this full, this type of state, uh, these strong states that way in some of those areas that are so war-torn um, as they're solidifying power. Uh, they, they're just this, they've so much inherent state weakness there. And then I think that's also going to be a time that's ripe for a lot of these uh, transnational, uh, trans, you know, we'll say transnational ideological appeals. Um, yeah. And and we know that there's so much, um, almost in a sense, these, 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 these ideologies on the sectarian level can resonate because so much of this I mean, there is a lot. It's not we're not we're not coming with the argument of oh, it's all sectarianism, but um, but there are so many of these conflicts that um, are are driven or fueled or shaped by sectarian conflict that it's not going to easily go away in you know in in, uh, in a in a few months or a year or something like that. That's that's really interesting, and I think this is probably a, a further conversation that that we should have, and I look forward to getting you on again to talk about that in more detail, Larry. But. Moving slightly away from that, I, I wonder if you could share a little bit about your experience in government. We've, we've spoken with, with Chris Phillips, with Fanar Haddad, with uh, Fred Wery about the experience of, of applying academic work in policy circles. And you've just spent a year in government. So can you just share a little bit about what you were doing and, and, and how you brought your experience to, to this? And, 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 and what it helped you do. Yeah, I, I, I'm happy to do that. Um, yeah, so I, just to give the, uh, whoever, the listeners a bit of background, um, I, I was, um, I served in the Department of Defense from August 2017 to 2018. And this was through a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellowship in, in actually in nuclear security, where the idea for at least for academics is if you're fortunate enough to be selected is that you spend a year uh, in government seeing, as, the, as everyone says, how the sausage is made um, <laughs> and learning from that experience and, and taking it back for to hopefully enrich your teaching, um, your public engagement, policy engagement, and also your research. Um, for sometimes they also for select uh, government people and bring them to the outside to think tanks to do them different things. Um, so this was a you know a complete uh, culture shock, um, but I wanted I something like this because I've been dealing with these questions that I, um, for, for a while. I want to see how things are. And I also was really fascinated, um, you know, substantively what was going on. Um, uh, and, um, and so it was a very challenging time to um, to be in government um, uh, put it that way uh, po- uh, yeah. policy wise um, and uh, there was a normal process in place but it didn't um, it didn't always um, it didn't always work that but you should l- at least could see the processes now the question is is you know how um, how kind of as they call them subject subject matter experts are used this is one of the other things kind of the ideas that um, 
uh, you know, what do you do um, as a subject matter expert in government and how can you contribute? Because these are sometimes the questions we have academics of, you know, academics get very frustrated saying nobody listens to me or, you know, yeah. I have all this great thing. Why isn't anybody, why can't, why can't this happen and that happen? So, um, you know, and I, just to backtrack, I spent, uh, I, I was, I was both at the, um, in the Middle East office and the office of secretary of defense for policy in the Middle East um, uh, um, on Egypt and Egypt country director, and then spent time in the countering WMD um, office. And um, the uh, so what is um, what was interesting to me was, and I think the primary takeaway is how how much policy, how much process matters. Um, we might we know that kind of coming from the outside. Many of us have read Graham Allison's work and yeah. know about bureaucracy, but. It's kind of it's really astounding until you actually see or experience um, that itself. And it's not saying, oh, this is all so awful and there's no there's nothing to it. But you do really do see how many decisions are driven by um, by process and and um, also how there might be these great ideas, but there's a big uh, premium put on um, on time. So you know, I was always thinking about how at any moment do we call in experts about this type of thing if people really just don't have the time and where do they fit in and how relevant is that expertise? And those are the questions because I was thinking, well, when I go back to the outside, where can I make uh, or play these big differences? You know, what is it that we do? I mean, one of the big things that we do beyond the intelligence community is that we write these long articles, but uh, these people don't, they don't have time to read these things. Yeah, um, of course. And uh, um, I mean, uh, that's a, you know, that wasn't really so much a shock, but it was just confirmation having a, a crazy day and knowing there's no chance I'm looking at anything um, like that. But um, uh, so that's, you know, that's one of it. The other one that, that I kind of uh, take away is is knowing that, um, you know, that, that networks matter so much. Uh, and that's another one that many people would guess. But, you know, when you're if you were in a, a crunch for something and say, please explain this, I need to understand this at the next meeting or in a couple hours. Um, and you call somebody the outside, it's the people that you know, it's going to, they're going to make a difference. Yeah. Um, and it may not be that this person's going to shape policy and come up with some grand idea, but it's much more of here's what's happening. Um, uh, and, or another way to think about it or, or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, and then another one is really, <clears throat> we can have great ideas, but as I said, kind of with the processes, if you don't, if you have these great strategies, if there's no plan to put it in place in a lot of ways, what are you going to do with this big idea? How is it going to fit in the bureaucracy? How does it have resources to do this type of thing? Then it's really just just an idea. It's not a strategy. Um, and uh, and I saw that in play working on many different issues. Um, and, uh, and, and that was another uh, fascinating experience. It's not saying that we should all be sad in this way because people are reading and especially I think a big influence in the intelligence community is that is that they're reading these experts. Um, they're they're also wonderful themselves, many of them doing great work, but they're they're supplementing you know what they're doing for what people on the outside are doing and have the contacts that they don't have. So um, you know it's more more a message to many of our academic friends who some people say I'm not don't want to have anything to do with it, but you know because they don't like government policy, but the the truth is is they can have influence even and they do just by writing. so don't <laughs> sure yeah ignore this because um, you know because your work is is valued. Right. No, that's that's really interesting. I mean, would you say that that this has made you? Oh, sorry. Would you say that your academic background helped you, or, or was more of a hindrance when you were there and doing the the policy driven job that you were doing? Um, you know, it, it's really hard for me to say. I think um, you know, at times because. Um, 
there was a lot that I could that I probably could pick up a lot faster if it had the background, but it's hard to ever it's hard to ever know that. Um, yeah. I think the the benefit is would have been I think the bigger benefit actually to be honest is once you've it takes you a long time to learn process a long long time, um, and uh, I think once you can learn process in any one office or something like that, then you can figure out. Once you figured out how to do that, then probably those ideas and those broader understandings of things when, when things pop up help you. So there's almost this long time. It's almost as if like once you really get going, um, then you have to leave, unfortunately. And I, I, I <laughs> yeah. leave it. Um, you know, and it's hard to describe what it's like to learn uh, to learn how these things work. But they, you know, they don't. Um, they don't work the way we think. Okay, I'm just going to sit down and write a paper. Um, and you know, you have to learn. It's fine. The, the language, who's it's going to, who do you need to, you know, who do you need to be in touch with? Um, and, uh, um, but you know, it's also a very, that's what I was saying. Like, this is a real, you really, at the same time, have a lot of confidence in, um, you know, having the, the positive sides of the bureaucracy, um, yeah. knowing that, um, you know, knowing that there are checks and balances to impulses to, you know, to some extent, um, we do see, very impulsive behavior at times that you can't control, but as far as sometimes the policies that come up, there are, there there are a lot of that. Um, you know, of course, the flip side is that means because of this bureaucracy, to push anything through from the bottom up or that way is is very challenging um, too. But uh, so I don't. I realize I kind of went off a little bit um, <laughs> on on what you were saying because a lot of it's still so fresh um, in my mind. You know, I'll, I'll give another example. Um, so while I was there, a book that uh, an edited volume that I was working on for a number of years with my um, uh, colleague, Adam Stolberg, uh, was on a different subject, on a nuclear subject, called uh, the End of Strategic Stability. Um, uh, um, sorry, I'm going to say, um, it's called, the, uh, anyway, the, um, sorry, wait for a second. The End of Strategic Stability, uh, Nuclear Weapons and the Challenges of Regional Rivalries. And so it came out then. And so what was fascinating was that, um, you know, being there at the time when an academic work comes out and and just um, uh, being very, very happy with the type of the, the reception that you get of people very interested in it. And also um, saying part of the bureaucracy of wanting to engage in these big issues that they're working day to day, but a lot of times don't have time to, um, you know, to, to think about I'm not saying that, they, you know, that the um, that they and they want to, but um, you know, but there's challenging of here. What's the next deadline and what's what's that yeah. going forward? So that's where another way that that experts can kind of um, can add a lot of value um, and uh, and to bring in. And I and I saw it too because I'd see colleagues come in and stuff like that, and and it was a great great experience to see that. It's really, really fascinating stuff, really interesting to get your insight and your your reflection. But Larry, I'm conscious that we've, we've taken up a great deal of your time, and I'm I'm very, very thankful that, that you've given us it, because it's been really fascinating to, to, to hear you talk about your work and, and reflect on this time. So I think there's a lot more to be spoken about. So hopefully we can get you back on again sometime in the new year, and we can reflect on these things a little bit more. But until then, Larry, many, many thanks. Thanks for joining us. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. That's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right.